Colossians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 is where I want to focus on this morning. Last week I focused on chapter 1 and I talked about what Paul was trying to describe for us is the real aim of our faith, namely the Redeemer, the King, the Creator. It is the God who was manifest, the firstborn from the dead, and whom all things are held together, and he is the one in whom we are reconciled. And he does this before he starts off with any of the real problems that are the issue in, in Colossae. People had come to him and said, look, Paul, there are problems here. We need to deal with this. And he does this then in chapter 2. And he deals with four issues. And in the first ten verses, he deals with empty philosophies. So he's, that's the aim of what he's trying to do. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who I have not seen personally, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Messiah himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Messiah. Therefore, as you have received Messiah, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Messiah. For in him all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. Paul is trying to show us the problem that he's dealing with. And in light of what he's already said, he's now saying, I'm struggling for you. He's stuck in jail. What can he do? The things that he's doing is praying for them and making intercession. And he's instructing them. He's allowing visitors to come with their problems saying, do you know what is happening over here? It is terrible. You never had that ad. The people knocked on your door and said, the trouble that we have. The reality is in every church there are troubles. But here we see some people now come with an empty philosophy, telling Paul, deal with this. Later on, he will deal with legalism in verses 11 to 17, then with mysticism in verses 18 to 19, and then Gnosticism or asceticism in verses 20 to 23. 
And so it's part of this combined attack that he's trying to deal with. Who were these opponents? We don't really know. If you read some commentaries, they were Pharisees. If you read other commentaries, they were pagans. They were mystics. They were Gnostics. They were. What it does show me is that if Satan wants to attack a church, he doesn't just go one way. He makes sure that there is a plethora of ideas coming in so that we get divided over what the real issue is. Yeah, we've we got to keep the feast. That, that's what it's all about. Uh, we've got to deny the body. Uh, no, no, you can eat whatever you like. You, you can touch or not touch. And by doing this, he divides the body up and the unity is lost. It's very clever. It's this Gnostic idea of special revelation that these believers now need. Paul is saying, yes, there is a mystical element here, but the mystery is in Christ. He is the mystery of God now being revealed, rather than this special knowledge that people claim to have. To join the Qumran community, you had to become an apprentice. Then over time, you would learn more and more, and it's the same in the Gnostics. You would come in as an apprentice, and you weren't saved. But by doing these things, by saying these prayers, by obeying these rules, by then you would be saved and you would attain to a greater glory and knowledge. That's why he started off with, it is in Christ rather than anything else. He is the one that is the truth. It's not about reducing him to an angel or some messenger or just a mediator it is all about him that's why chapter one is so crucial that we understand when we want to combat false teaching focus on who he is rather than on the little things that possibly would divide us what has been Paul's gospel that he's been saying throughout Salvation is in Messiah alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. And these had come in and said, no, no, salvation is one thing, but to keep your salvation, you've got to do. You've got to believe these extra things. Pharisaic Judaism would have taught salvation through Torah keeping, through law keeping. The mystery cults would have said, only if you go up into the mysteries of God that we have and you don't know yet, then you will attain salvation. The philosophers here would have said, only if you love knowledge, gnosis, special, deep-seated, unrevealed revelations, then you will attain salvation. And Paul is struggling for them, saying, no, no, let's get it clear, Messiah. And so he's struggling with them, and he's telling them that this may encourage you, that in him you have the wealth, the assurance of understanding, and the true knowledge of God's mystery. Paul's desire, therefore, is to encourage them. Let's be honest, we all need encouragement 
all of us. From time to time we need more and other times we can give more. Some of us even receive the gift of encouragement like Joseph did, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, son of encouragement in the book of Acts chapter 4. We all need it. From Genesis forwards, we see that it is needed. Paul being stuck in jail, I think he would have needed it. Let's be honest. I'm in prison. There's nothing I can do. Well, hang on, Paul. You can write letters. And he does so to encourage us. Why? Because encouragement is about giving hope. Giving hope is what we need. Listen to these words from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who was promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet one another as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. Huh. We need to encourage one another because that builds up hope. And we're reminded of the one who is promised and who is faithful, who will fulfill. And the day is coming. The day is near. In the book of Acts, in chapter 15, verse 32, we read about Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophet, and who encouraged and strengthened the brothers, how? With many words. In other words, with the preaching. So it's not just relying on the prophetic word, he is coming, the day is drawing near, but also on the faithful preaching of the word. Romans chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. I long to see you that I might impart some spiritual gift to you, to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. It is the exercise of our spiritual gifting to one another and amongst one another that is an encouragement. And it's mutual, he says. It is an encouragement for him as it is for the believers. Encouragement was needed for great leaders of the past. Uh, when we think about the book of Joshua, uh, not the book, the person of Joshua, uh, the Lord tells Moses uh, to speak to Joshua, the son of Nun, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 38, uh, who stands before you. Encourage him. If I was Joshua, I would have said, what do you mean, me lead this people? They didn't listen to you. Why would they listen to me? They were rebellious when God did miracle after miracle. What hope do I have? It's no surprise then that in Joshua, sorry, in Deuteronomy 3, verse 28, he says, But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go ahead of this people. Leaders need to be encouraged too. Moses needed that. Joshua needed that. We all need it. It's good to encourage people. For within that we support them. 
Remember when the Jewish people came back out of Babylon? The temple was destroyed. The city of Jerusalem was broken. The walls were gone. And Nehemiah in chapter 2, he's walking around the city and saying, Oi, this will not do. What does he do? He encourages the people to build the wall. And then he does something unique. He makes sure that he underwrote the building. He enabled the people to do it. So it wasn't just words. It was practical. Encouragement is not just saying, I'll pray for you, brother. Be well, be dressed, be clothed. But there is that practical application. Why do they need encouragement? Because we all get discouraged. If we focus on ourselves and on our troubles, that's exactly what we have. Uh, You remember the, the, the major story in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, Uh, the disciples in the boat, Jesus walks past and Peter says, Lord, if it's your will, command me to come out and I'll... And Jesus says, come. And then it says, Peter walked on water. We always focus on that he was sinking, but it says he walked on water. And then he saw the wind. And then he began to sink. What did he do? He took his eyes off the Lord and he started sinking. He took his eyes on the one who enabled everything to happen. Peter needed encouragement too. He needed to stick to what was happening. We don't have the physical Jesus in our midst. But he ministers through us, through you and me, because he indwells us. We're in him and he in us. And so we need to then encourage one another all the more. Paul writes to them that they are being knit together in love. Peter uses a different expression in 1 Peter 2.5, that we are built together as a living building, so we are living stones. But here we are knitted together as one family. It's easy to drop a stitch. I've done knitting once in my life, and I dropped lots of stitches. And then the garment is no more useful to you. And it's the same with building a wall. If you have bricks that are not in the right place, it it won't be helpful. But we're knitted together. How do we stay together? Well, by loving one another. Well, that's easy if you're lovable. But think about the disciples here for a second. Peter, impetuous, quick-tempered, shut off his mouth whenever he could. James the Lesser, or James the Younger, I've got an inferiority complex. I I identify with him. Who, Who am I, Lord? We had Andrews always looking for Peter. It's, uh, what's the Lord doing? There was John who had anger issues. Let's call fire from heaven, Lord. Let's 
get this over and done with. There was Nathaniel the skeptic. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Thomas the doubter. Matthew, who probably would have been ignored by many of them because he was a tax collector after all. And then there was Judas the pretender. He pretended to love Jesus, but he loved money and he betrayed the Lord. Would it have been easy to love them? And the, the apostle who's chosen after them is Paul, who presided over a murder. I don't know if they're a really lovable bunch. Or to encourage them, I don't know if I would want to do that. These were difficult personalities and it did not make it easy. Yes, they were saints, Saint Peter, Saint James, Saint Andrew, but they were saints in the making like you and me. And so too for us it is not always easy to encourage one another as we focus not on Christ in you, but on the sins in you. And we need to focus on Christ in you. We do this in love, remembering Paul struggles that they may be knitted together in love. Why do we do it in love? Because it's a commandment to us. John 15, uh, Jesus speaking, verses 11 to 14. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. And this is my commandment to you that you love one another as I have loved you. They are knitted together in love, not looking at the failures within each other, not that mushy feeling that we get when we love people, but it is a commandment that we love, even the unlovable. Above all, love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4, 8. Paul said he was struggling for them that they may attain the riches. What riches would this be? We mentioned some of them this morning. I, I was encouraged by that. In the Gospel of John, let me pull up some thoughts here. John 1 verse 12. It's to them who are in him, who receive him, he gave them the power to be the sons of God even to them that believe on his name. John 3.36 So that he that believes on the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 18.12 Jesus spoke these things to them, saying, I am the light of the world, and he that walks in, sorry, he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the life of light. John 11, verses 25 and 26, basically summarizes, whoever lives believes in me and shall never die. What are promises we have? The riches that are in Christ. Children of God, no longer is wrath against us. We have the light within us and eternal life. Hang on, Paul, you're pulling a fast one here. That's not in the book of Colossians. No, that's true. But look at chapter 1. We have, he's our king, redeemer, the forgiver of our sins, 
chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. He's the creator, and he was before creation. Verse 16, he's the leader of us. He's the head of the body. Verse 18, and in him all things were reconciled. We no longer have wrath because we're reconciled. He is the light because he created us and we are like, we will become like him. He's our king and redeemer, the forgiver. All of those things are now ours because they're part of the riches, the wealth that is in him. Paul also wrote that we will have a full assurance of understanding of Messiah. Let's be honest, we struggle with that. I struggle with that. How much knowledge can I contain when he is the creator out of all things? I know he loves me, but think about all of creation. I cannot even comprehend the knowledge that he has. But at the same time, that what he has revealed belongs to us and we need to explore it. And by exploring him and what he's done, I will have a peace. But if I focus on myself and on me, myself and I, I lose my, pay, my peace. Because I don't do the things that I ought to do, like Paul. And I need to focus on the Lord, on what he's done Colossians 1, 13 to 14, he's rescued us from the domain of darkness. Therefore, I don't need to focus on that. And he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Yes, we still are sinners. We still have a sinful nature. But he worked salvation for us so that we can do the good deeds that he required from us. He saved us, and these people, these anti-apostles, these false apostles came in and said, okay, but, but there is now a new mystery. You have to do things as if you can work not for your salvation, but maintain your own salvation. And that's false. Jude Verse 24, now unto him that is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. It is he who also keeps us. It is not my work that saved me or that keeps me. It is him. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39, Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created things will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Messiah Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us because of his finished work. Paul in this section uses terms like understanding, knowing, truth, wisdom. He's making sure that we have a full assurance against what Gnostics teach. Yes, there is a divine out there, but we, we don't really know him. We just got to do these things in the hope that he'll like us. 
but the work has been done for us. The true knowledge is God's mystery, Christ himself, Messiah himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It is not something that I do. It's something that he is. He is the mystery. But the mystery is not a riddle. It is revealed to us. What is the mystery? The indwelling of Messiah, the hope of glory in each believer. He is the revealed treasure of wisdom and knowledge for us. And therefore, that is the truth that Paul is using and arguing them to pursue, rather than that they may be deluded by some plausible argument. We know that we can trust the Spirit who will lead us in this from John's Gospel, John 16, 13 to 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he is, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Point is that the Holy Spirit will point to Jesus time and time and time again and not to any other things. These false prophets were teaching, oh, there's some wisdom here and there and deep knowledge. Paul is saying, don't follow the hidden secret things, follow the revealed Christ. Paul is worried and he struggles for them against these false teachers. These false apostles that were teaching them with persuasive but empty arguments. And Paul is well aware that he's absent in body from them, but he's present with them in spirit. And that's in prayer. And that's in writing letters to them. He is overjoyed knowing that they have achieved something, a strengthening of the faith. And because they haven't taken root yet, he is warning them, saying, don't let these things take root in you, but be rooted in Messiah, the Redeemer, because that will build you up and that will build up the body. And then he says, causing them to abound in Messiah with thanksgiving. If we understood what Messiah has done, what's our response? What can it be but give thanks? And therefore, when you give thanks, make sure that nobody takes you captive through these philosophies, these lover of knowledge, philosophia, and with empty deceptions according to the traditions of man. It's a phrase that we find in Judaism, traditions of man. Pirkavot uh, is that phrase. And these had come in and started teaching scripture and then deviating slightly time and time and time again. And that's exactly what they do here. Yes, it's still about Messiah, but he's just a mediator. He is just a redeemer. He's just a mystery. And Paul is saying none of that. For in him dwells the Godhead. Therefore, don't pursue other things. 
Paul is declaring that it's an empty deception, a tradition of men, elementary principles of this universe, meaning the basic things, possibly leaning on Galatians 4.3, where we see that same kind of phrasing, indicating that these are spiritual bodies or heavenly bodies, angelic beings that are leading you astray when we hear another voice that is not right, let's leave it alone. These philosophies cause you to worship the elements. And sadly today, almost every newspaper, every magazine, they still do that. They worship the stars. That's exactly what these fallen beings, these angelic beings want. They want to divert our attention away from Christ. Early Gnostic ideas came in saying Jesus is just a man. Or, or maybe he's just a God, but he's not the God. Jesus is portrayed as a half-God, a junior, or a lesser deity. Within less than 50 years... Two heresies come up in the church. These are significant. These heresies are saying that, one of them was saying, I should say docetism, was saying Jesus was different than the spirit of Christ. It was distinct. And Paul is having none of that in him. The full head of the, the Godhead dwells. Uh, the other one, uh, that Jesus seemed to be a man, and he's having none of that too. Friends, these specific problems are no longer in our church. But as you read through this chapter, you'll see that time and time and time again, the fallen angels will come in with new attacks, but still using the same principles. Take your eyes off Jesus and focus on something else, is their claim. Or bring Jesus down. It is our opportunity to do the truth of Scripture and to teach the truth of Scripture by encouraging one another to stick to the Scriptures. It's not about some secret knowledge, some empty philosophy. The reality is found in Messiah himself. So that together we can give thanks to the Lord for all that he has done, rather than anything else. Friends, in light of that, let us encourage one another, build one another up, support one another, that we may declare together the name of the Lord and make known his deeds amongst the peoples.